0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's have one more brief word of prayer asking God's help. Father, there are many things that we need. and all of them can only be found in you. And so we come to your word this morning, Father, not seeking worldly wisdom, not seeking hints and tricks for how to master this life. Father, not just seeking provision for today or the days that lie ahead. Father, we come to this word this morning seeking so we ask you to speak to us through your word, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what's been told, and then transform us by the power of your spirit. Father, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm gonna to return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We continue on in this third chapter. Reading again this morning, verse 14 down through verse 21. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you will very likely recall that we have just concluded a very lengthy digression from the Apostle Paul and he has returned now to his prayer for the saints in Ephesus and as you see here he begins with that short phrase, for this reason. And as we talked last week, Paul's making clear that he has an aim. He has a goal. He has a purpose. He has a hope for his prayers. Paul isn't just saying his prayers here, as so many do. He isn't just reciting some words. So many men, they come running thoughtlessly into the presence of God with no idea, why am I even here? What am I even hoping that God will do in my life? But Paul knew exactly what he wanted. Every time Paul came before God in prayer, he had a purpose in mind. He had a for this reason on his heart. Now you remember that this is not the first great prayer that the apostle has offered here in this letter. Back in the first chapter, verses 15 to 23, we saw him praying there. And what was the, what was the main emphasis? What was the for this reason of that first prayer? It was primarily that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. That they would know the things that are true of them in Christ. That they would have an awareness of everything that God had done on their behalf as they considered God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all fully engaged in the redemption of their people. And so his purpose there was that they would, they would know this truth. They'd have a, a deep and abiding understanding that they would have this biblical truth and this reality of what God has done and who he is for them is the bedrock beneath their feet, that their hope would be grounded on something real, something abiding, something that would endure to the end. So here in chapter three, the for this reason is a bit different. He's praying here in this prayer that God would come and help these folks to experience that which is real. That he would come near to them, that they would be strengthened. That he would be so near to them that it would be said that they are filled with all the fullness of God. That they would know the love of God. That they would know the power of God. That they would know an inner strengthening by the presence of God. Again, I said that they may experience as real all that is true of them in Christ Jesus. So where we might say that in that first prayer, he prayed that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. He's praying now that that very same heart may be filled with Christ. Now, I think we do well to remember that those two things are in no way at odds. They're in no way mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, you folks know that the path to the heart always comes through the head. God reveals truths to his people. We, We should be an intellectually curious kind of people. Thankful that a man like Paul has been used of God to sweep us up into heavenly places. To pull back the veil and reveal to us things that were true before the foundation of the world, long before we showed up on the scene. So he's praying that that which has taken root in our head would take root in our heart, not just a knowledge, but an experience, an experience of power. In short, what we see here is this is, as I told you last week, a transition of sorts. We're moving from these indicative statements, these things that are true, to the imperatives. He's fixing to start talking to us about the way in which we're meant to live this life in the power of Christ. When we come to the beginning of this next section, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, he's still talking about his imprisonment, but he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You remember back in chapter one, he says that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. For what end? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. The end of this thing is us living here on earth as the saints in a way that matches who we already are in heaven. Seated with Christ at the right hand of the father. So again, if I can give you some hooks to hang your thoughts on, we might think of that first thought as him praying that we have eyes to see. Here in this second prayer, he's praying that we might have feet that walk. that We may live out what is true of us in Christ. And so last week, we talked about what an incredible blessing it is to have these inspired prayers recorded for us. And so we considered, firstly, Paul's posture in prayer. He says there that he has bowed his knees. We know that this isn't about a physical stance. Some men stand, some men lay on, the, lay on the floor on their face before God. Some men may be seated before the Lord when they pray. It's not about a, a physical posture, but it's about submission and honor and worship and reverence before God. It doesn't matter what shape your body's in, as long as your heart is one like that tax collector in Jesus' parable that beat his breath breast and Couldn't even raise his eyes towards heaven as he cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And at the same time, it's counterbalanced by the fact that he turns around and calls this same God his father. I told you last week that part of the reason so many men don't come to God in prayer is because they can't bear the thought of the full weight of his glory coming down upon them. They're terrified of what this holy, holy, holy God might burn away with his refining fire. Maybe something that they've grown quite fond of. Many men come rushing into the presence of God thoughtlessly, carelessly, having no concept of his holiness. The the flippant nature by which so many men step into worship, it, it betrays a heart that knows nothing of the holiness of God. Nothing of the wretchedness of sin. Nothing of strange fire for which God will consume sinners. So he counterbalances this. For those of us who feel the weight of this holy, holy, holy God, he counterbalances it by reminding us this same holy God is our Father. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This is where the boldness and confident access that we just concluded with in verse, excuse me, earlier in chapter three. That's where this comes in, that he's our father, not by nature, but by adoption. As we are in Christ Jesus, cleansed, clothed in his righteousness, so that the father can look at us. Christ Jesus saying, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother's. And so that the Father can look at us as beloved sons. He can welcome us warmly. He can welcome us in delight in doing us good. He is our God and our Father. And you realize that this reverence and this intimacy, they're in no way at odds. I submit to you that even with earthly fathers, There is no greater honor that can be paid to an earthly father than for his children to have the proper sense of intimacy and fear of him. So we come to God like this. He is our God and he is our father. And we must grasp this. As as much as a man is able, we must have some concept of who we are outside of Christ and who we are in Christ on what basis we come before God. We must have an awareness of how we came to be defiled by sin. We must know something of God's holiness and what that will look like in the day of judgment as sinners still stained by that sin stand before Him. We must have an awareness of Christ Jesus' atoning work. We must know what this cleansing looked like and what it cost. We must know the reconciliation that is offered in Christ. We must understand that this a reconciliation It brings more than just outward peace, but an inner bond, a sense of love and unity. We must have an awareness of this ongoing intercession that Christ Jesus makes on our behalf. And we must know the abiding love of God that he has for us as we are in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we have to have all these things mastered. You will never master them in this life. And I'm not saying that you've got to work through a systematic theology every time you desire to come before your father in prayer. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Whether it's men like Job or David or Asaph, God does not require the utmost of theological precision every time we cry out for him in the middle of turmoil. Oh God, are you there and do you care? But we've got to have a heart that desires to speak what is true about God. We've got to have a heart that knows on what basis can I possibly approach this God? Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who will go for us? Who is our champion and whose righteousness can we rest on? We have to have these things there, seasoning our prayers. The word of God informing us, not just giving us the words to speak before the Father, but telling our hearts, how can I stand before him? What does it mean to stand in hope and trembling at the same time? You've got to have the kind of heart that wants to know this. This is, this is the only way that you can. This is the only way that you can be driven on your knees before God. That you can feel the weight of His glory. That you can feel the foundations tremble at His voice. And at the same time have bold and confident access knowing that He's your Father. It's the only way you can ask for the right things. It's the only way you can ever pray in accordance with his will. It's the only way you can ever have any assurance that he's going to hear you when you cry. And so because of this, what we'll find is some very deep and rich theology just peppered all throughout the Apostle Paul's prayers. As we read these prayers, we can learn some things about God we can have other things that we know to be true about God confirmed for us and see how they're meant to drive us in our communion with him. You remember back in that first prayer, verse 17 of Ephesians chapter one, he says that he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the father of glory. What a dense and theologically rich statement is that? He goes on in verse 19, of that same prayer to talk about the immeasurable greatness Of his power. Then here in this morning's prayer. Verse 15. He bows his knees before the father. Verse 15. From whom every family in heaven. And on earth is named. Now this is a somewhat difficult passage. To interpret. We know. As I've just. Confessed to you. Reminded you. We know. That it's only in Christ Jesus that everyone, anyone can ever stand before God as Father. As I sought to show you Wednesday night from Scripture, running all throughout the Bible is this reminder there's only two families in this world. There's the family of God and there's the family of the evil one. And you remember how Jesus spoke to the Jewish leaders that were surrounding him there in John chapter 8 as he says that if God were your father, you would love me. The heart that has God as his father is the heart that receives Christ as his son. It's only as we are in Christ Jesus that we can come to the father as father. He went on to say that you are of your father. Who's their father? You're of your father, The devil. We talked Wednesday night about how, how much in this world, even the Christian heart, we, we hate to see things so black and white. We like to believe that there's some neutral people out there. But scripture makes clear, you're either a son of the devil or you're a son of God. And so because of that, because of this awareness that only the Christian, only the saint can call God his father, because of this, Those of you that read maybe from the King James translation, you'll find verse 15 reads like this, that he's praying, he's bowing his knee before the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, whole family, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. They've translated it whole family rather than every family. Now, grammatically, it can work either way. And so if this is the case, if he's talking about the whole family in heaven and in earth, then surely he's talking about all those Christians, all those saints, all those who have been brought to faith who are still alive, both Jew and Gentile. And he's also talking about those elect among the angels, those holy angels that can rightly call God their father. Then he's also talking about all those saints who have gone on before us people that you dearly loved in your own life, and and maybe some of your spiritual heroes that you looked up to, those who have already gone on to glory. He's encompassing all of them in this one singular family, this whole family of God. There's there's hints of this in the picture of worship given to us by the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is what Paul means here, talking of the whole family of God in heaven and on earth. And he's got yet again a cosmic view. A universal view, a view that goes long beyond our own timeline, the 60, 70, 80, 100 years that we have on this earth. He's going back to eternity past and forward into eternity future and as high as heaven and as low as the grave. And he's taking all of those who have been called to faith in Christ Jesus and those holy angels that serve him and worship him and honor him and adore him and look over the parapets of heaven watching his wonderful wisdom as he compiles this church even now. He's saying that whole family of God is the father of that family before whom I pray. And certainly that seems to match the emphasis of chapter 2. Remember he talked in did I just say Genesis? Did I say Ephesians? Doesn't matter. I'm just worried that my brain stopped. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about us as members of the household of God. There's a, there's a singular household, a singular family. A singular building, a singular temple that God is building in which he will dwell. And so if this is the case, then what Paul has in mind here is God is merciful redeemer and savior. He's talking about the whole family of God. But if the ESV translators have it right, if what he's talking about here is not the whole family, but every family in heaven and on earth, then we've got to deal with. But not everyone can call God their father. So in what way can we say every family in heaven and on earth has been named from God the Father? Well, there's a couple of hints here why that might work. One of them is there's a bit of a play on words. It's lost in the English, but you find it in the Greek. The word for father is patera. The word for family that he uses here that's a rare word. It's only used three times that I can find in Scripture. It's patria. The patria that comes from the patera. The father from whom the family comes. And we have this understanding of a family. We understand that a a family or or a tribe or a nation or a people, they come, they find their original source from one man. They all point back to one point of origin. And and that's what makes the study of Genesis so fun, at, at least in part for me. As we look back to the very beginnings and we realize that all humanity came from the loins of one man, Adam. And then you fast forward a bit and you meet the man Noah and you find that all the nations of the world came forth from his three sons, Ham and Shem and Japheth. And, and then you see these men from whom these other nations spring up as the story goes along. Jacob, his name changed to Israel. The Moabites, where they come from? Moab. The Ammonites, where they come from? Ammon. The Ishmaelites, where they come from? Ishmael. You see? You start to realize if you go back far enough, every nation and every tribe and every people group and every family, they find their source of origin in one man. And so surely in that sense, while not all of creation can be said to come to God as their blessed father, it's clear that we all find our source in him. What does Paul say in chapter, here in chapter 3, verse 9? He says that it is God who has created all things. All things, whether visible or invisible, rulers and authorities and principalities, man and all creation here on earth, where'd they come from? From him. Paul talked about this in Acts chapter 17. He says that we are all his offspring in this sense. We are all his offspring. Verse 25 says, Acts 17, 25. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live all, excuse me, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So it's absolutely true to say that God, as creator and sustainer of all that is, he's the source of all life. And with that source, with, with that position as creator and owner of all that is, comes the right to name. Naming something is a clear indication of authority and dominion. Again, go back to the book of Genesis. And what do we find Adam doing? Naming all the animals as a representative of God, as the image bearer of God, as one that's meant to take the glory of God to the ends of the earth. One of of this man's not not only privileges, but responsibilities was to name all the animals. We see this from Psalm 147, verse 4. We see God naming all that is, including the stars of heaven. It says that he determines the number of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. Why does he get to name them? You know, we find stars, and they, and they give them names. They already had names. They received a name from their father at the day of their birth. As he breathed them out, he called them each by name. He is the father of all. And so I think that that's probably the right interpretation. It's probably what Paul has in mind here. But if we, if we come to Scripture with inquisitive hearts, if we come to Scripture not just to, to read the prayer and hurry up and rush through it so we can get to something else, then we probably ought to, ask, ought to ask the question, what does this have to do with anything? Why in the middle of this prayer is the Apostle Paul drawing our eyes to the fact that God is the creator and sustainer and owner and namer of everything that is. The easiest answer to this, it seems to me, is that the apostle Paul needs to remind himself and he needs to remind us that God's purposes in this world are a whole lot bigger than him and whatever he's facing. Again, I say it's a cosmic plan. It's an eternal plan. It involves those who belong to him both in heaven and on earth and all creation in between. That God is doing something in all the universe. And while my little life is right here before my eyes, so much so that I can barely worry about you people, if I would lift my eyes towards heaven, consider my maker, I would recognize that he is doing a billion things at any one moment in all his creation. This thing is a lot bigger than me. Now, our hearts don't like that. Oftentimes, we do believe that we're the center of the universe. Part of that's our parents' fault, because they always told us we were special. But I think we can see maybe something else here. If it is, if it's not the whole family of God, if it is every family, then what Paul has in mind here, where he's setting his focus here in this prayer, is not God is merciful Savior, But God is sovereign creator and sustainer and Lord. That what he wants us thinking about when we read this prayer is not redemption, but providence. I want you to think about this. Those of you that follow um, the acts pattern of, of prayer, and I tend to follow this pattern. Well, you begin with adoration and then you move to confession and then thanksgiving and then supplication. Then you make your request. But that that, that portion at the beginning, I I need to set my heart right beneath the weight of God's glory. This is the thing that causes me to bow the knees of my heart. That I adore him and I honor him and I worship him and I, I speak high truths about him. So Paul's doing that, but he's doing more. He's setting the foundation on which his confidence rests. He's coming before God and he's reminding himself and he's speaking back to God. How can I be sure that you can do the thing that I'm asking? Think about this. If you're going before God and and you're coming to him and and there's there's some sin and guilt and shame resting heavy on your heart. And you're seeking not just forgiveness, but you're seeking comfort and you're seeking assurance, and you're seeking that He would clothe you with the righteousness of Christ, that He would give you confidence, that He would wash you, that He would cleanse you, where should your heart rest with regards to who God is? On His mercy. On the cross of Jesus Christ, in your sin already paid for. On the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, in the, the proof that it's been paid. On Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. I had a brother that came to me Wednesday night in light of our prayer, light of our sermon on prayer last week. And he said, how, how do I make sure when I pray that I'm not creating an, an earthly image of God in my mind? He said, many of us can be so so visible and oftentimes I don't have this particular problem, but I believe it to be true because I hear from others that I go in and I'm trying to picture a picture of God, the invisible of God. God who has commanded us not to make graven images and reminded us of anything we could make, not just with our hands, but even with our minds, it's going to be so much lower than he really is. It will be an abomination and an insult and a dishonoring thing. Those brothers said, what, what, what do I do then? Because my heart and my mind keeps wanting to make a picture of God. And I said, brother, as best I can understand it, here's what you do. You go to those places where God has revealed himself and you set your heart there. He has revealed his love and his mercy, his forgiveness, his goodness, all throughout redemptive history. And so you set your heart there. You don't try to picture God's face or his feet or the sound of his voice. You see him as he revealed himself in creation and in history and in your own life. We set our we set our basis of our hope on the things that we know to be true about God, based on the needs that we bring before Him. And and what is Paul's need right here? What is the thing that he's praying for? He's going to end by talking about God doing far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. If I'm asking God to do impossible things, if I'm asking God to do things that are so far beyond anything this world can offer. Doesn't it make sense that I would ground that hope in the reality that God is above and beyond and outside and owner of and providentially controlling all of his creation? I think that's what he's doing. And I think that's a thing that we've seen Christian saints doing throughout all generations. We see it all throughout scripture. It's a reminder that God is not only the creator, but the sustainer, the sovereign Lord over everything that is. It has long brought comfort To his people, especially during times of fear and doubt and hurt, turmoil and anxiety and depression. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 121, 2. My help comes from the Lord. God, I'm looking to you for help. What do I need to know about you, God, as I come to you for help? My help comes from the Lord. Who is he? He's the maker of heaven and earth. What you think about Peter and John having been dragged in before the Jewish council, and they've been ordered to quit preaching and quit teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And they're released and they come back to the brethren and they're all huddled together there in Acts chapter 4, and they're all together there and they're going to pray to God for his help. It'd be easy for discouragement to set in. It would be easy to think that this. Experiment called the church is hopeless. It would be easy to feel outnumbered. It would be easy to be depressed. It would be easy to be anxious and fearful and sad and sorry. And where do their hearts go in this prayer? Acts 4:24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They set their heart. They set their hopes. They grounded themselves in this truth about God. God, you have made and you are sovereign over everything that is. They then recite some of Psalm uh, Psalm 2 and then in verse 27 they go on. For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. What are they doing? They're drawing their minds back. They're not trying to picture the face of God. They're drawing their minds back to things in which God has revealed himself. Namely the cross of Jesus Christ. The ultimate display of God's glory, of of his love and his justice. So they said, For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. The whole world is against us. But they were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. That's where their comfort came from. Our enemies and the enemies of Christ Jesus Even they are being used to work out your perfect plan, your plan that you had before the foundation of the world as the creator and sustainer and sovereign Lord of all that is. Therefore, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. We have boldness because we trust in you as sovereign Lord. We have boldness because we know that you're the creator. We have boldness because we have seen this truth about you as you've revealed it, not just in your word, but in history. I've told you before, we marvel at men that tell stories through song or through paint or through poem. How much more must we marvel at this God who tells his redemptive story throughout the cosmos? So people often wonder, how does God's sovereignty Interact with our prayers. If God truly is sovereign, the way you say that he is sovereign, providentially moving all things in accordance with his perfect will, what role does prayer then have? Beloved, I tell you, much in every way. If God is not sovereign in the way that we see his sovereignty screaming to us off the pages of Scripture, then there are great limits to how he can and or will help us. find another passage of, of comfort and of, and of help. I want you to think about the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32. This is right on the heels of his sorry cousin coming and selling him a piece of land. Although God had told him, you're going to buy the piece of land. This is the, the Babylonians are surrounding and they're about to siege the, the city and destroy Jerusalem. And so God has Jeremiah make what looks like the worst investment of all time. And Jeremiah and his Finite wisdom and understanding as godly a man as he was. He's confused and he's seeking encouragement and understanding. And give me some idea of what we're doing here. But listen to the way that he prays before God. How does he set his heart? When the world around you doesn't make sense. When the things that God is calling you to do seem utterly foolish. When it appears to you that he is allowing the world to take advantage of you. What does he set his heart Jeremiah 32 17 Our Lord God it is you who have made heavens and the earth and by your great power and by your outstretched arm they exist what does he say nothing is too hard for you I think that's Paul's mindset remember it takes a miracle to make a Christian And it doesn't just take a miracle to make a Christian, it takes a miracle to endure that Christian to the end, to finish the race of faith, to not be overcome by depression and sadness and sorrow and loss and suffering. It takes a miracle from God. So he's saying, God, I'm asking you to do this impossible thing. So I must remind myself that you, you sovereign Lord have power over the hearts of all men It is well within your power to stop the sun in the sky. The the heart of kings are like streams of water in your hand. You turn them wherever you wish. You bring bread from heaven. You heal the sick. You raise the dead. You are the sovereign Lord. And so I'm not a fool to come before you and ask you to do this impossible thing. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory. We've seen that word riches often here in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, haven't we? It's, it's, it's wealth. It's a superabundant wealth. What kind of things is God rich in? Well, all things. He's rich in silver and gold and all the cattle on a thousand hills, but that's not the kind of thing that Paul draws our attention to, is it? He's talked to us here, not just in Ephesians, but there's a number of times in the book of Romans as well, he talks about the riches of God's goodness, the riches of his grace, the riches of his love, the riches of his kindness. Now again, God is rich in all things. Every good thing comes from him and he has given us many good gifts. We see Paul pointing our hearts there in Philippians 4, verse 19. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God does give his people that which they need, whether it is food or shelter or forgiveness or freedom from sin. But every single one of these things is only meant to drive us to him. What good is forgiveness? What good is adoption? What good is redemption? What good is cleansing? What good is me being made holy? What good is heaven? if it doesn't bring you to God. So ultimately, what is God rich in? God is rich in God. How rich? How rich is God's richness in Godness? Unfathomable. Isn't that the kind of language that he uses? Paul's always piling these words each other. He says in Ephesians 3.8 that Paul was called to preach what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. In 1.19 he talks about his immeasurable greatness. 2.7 he talks about again immeasurable riches. What's immeasurable mean? Can't be measured. Inexhaustible. There is no end. God is infinitely rich in all of his perfections. God is infinitely rich in goodness and in mercy and in love. God is infinitely rich in wisdom and in knowledge and in power. God is infinitely rich in purity and in justice and in righteousness. But do you notice that the Apostle Paul is not praying about any one of those singular attributes here? What is he praying for? the riches of His glory. You all know what glory is. We beat this word up. It's one of those churchy words that we throw around, but so few have any understanding of what is it. You go back to the Old Testament. What is that word? You know by now, kabod. It means weight. It's the weightiness of God. You take the sum total of all that He is. The infinitude of all his perfections. And you put it upon a scale. How much does it weigh? Infinity. It's his weight. You come to the New Testament, you get this word doxa. It means his radiance or his brilliance or his beauty or his majesty. The infinite worth of God. The sum total of all that God is. This is his glory. And so Paul's going to make these three requests. Remember how we've, we looked through last week those three main requests that he seems to be laying out here in his prayer. And I want you to see this morning the way in which he makes those requests. He's asking God to act. How? In accordance with, according to the riches of his glory. Now this word, according to it, can just mean as given by. Some of your Bibles may have the top of the Gospels, the Gospel according to St. Mark. It's just as given through or as told by. But there's another way in which this word, according to, can be used it can mean consistent with or in proportion to. That's what Paul means here. You realize that he isn't asking God for crumbs from his table. He isn't just asking for some overflow or some, some extra. God, do you have any that glory stuff that you could possibly spare? The Apostle Paul is bold enough to come to God and ask on behalf of these saints, God, would you act in accordance with, commensurate with, at a level proportionate to your infinite glory? Do you understand it? And he has right to ask this. This is in part what it means for God to be your God and you to be his people. As David read in the Old Testament promise of the new covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. In short, what God is saying is all that I am in my infinite glory, I am for you. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 32. You need to see this for yourself. Remember I read to you earlier Jeremiah is, is praying to God and reminding himself that God has done all things and nothing has created all things and that nothing is too difficult. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. And this is the word of God. Speaking to a prophet, standing in a city on the brink of destruction. Des- and, and you need to hear me now. Please look up once you're done turning, because I need to make sure you've got, I've got your attention here. These people brought this destruction upon themselves. Your sin does not thwart God's plan. Your sin does not overthrow his grace and his mercy and his goodness for his children. We have this tendency to believe that, yes, God can do all things. That he is eternally and infinitely for me. As long as the troubles we face are out there somewhere. As long as it's sickness or persecution or coming from somebody else. Some undeserved suffering. Surely God cares for me in this. Beloved, even in suffering that you have caused. Even in destruction that your sin has wrought. God is working something out. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. He says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they shall fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. This is what David was reading earlier out of Ezekiel. For your good, I'm going to do the miracle. I'm going to keep you from turning away. I'm going to make sure that you fear me. Verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Your hearts are prone to wander. I'll do the miracle. By the power of my spirit, I will keep you in fear of me. I will make certain that you do not turn away from me. And I will not turn away from doing them good. Verse 41, listen. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart, with all my soul. Do you understand? the weight of what he has just said that God does not begrudgingly do you good God does not look upon his children on the earth and say I have no love for them I have no concern for them if I could I would just turn my heart back and utterly destroy them but I've committed and so I must do them good You hear earthly parents that act like this. I can't wait till this kid turns 18. I'm required by law to care for them and to clothe them and to comfort them. But once they turn 18, they're out of here. This is not the heart of your father. He says, I delight in doing them good. I rejoice in doing them good. Zephaniah 3.14, I exult over them in doing them good. For those who come clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, They're my beloved children, but don't miss that final word. How does he do his good? Does he just delight in it? Does he just rejoice in it? But then he half-heartedly does it? How does he do it? With all my heart and all my soul. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our might, with all our strength, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all that we are. And he says, I have pledged myself to love you in that way to do good for you in that way, not just from my heart, with my whole heart, I do you good. If you would just believe this, if you would just believe this to be true, how would it transform your prayer life? How would it transform the way that you pray for and encourage others? I want to transform the way that you walk through suffering and sorrow and sickness. Paul's just believing that promise. He believes that promise. And so what's the upper limit for Paul's prayer? You remember um, Herod looks at the the little dancing girl, Herodias' daughter. I don't remember. Are we told her name? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. Little, Little dancing girl. What does he say to her? Ask anything you want. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Paul believes the promises of God. And so what's the upper limit of his request? What's the upper limit of his prayer? How about the infinite glory of God? You ask too little. You settle for too little. Do you understand? He says, I will delight with the whole of my heart and the whole of my soul in doing you good. The infinitely glorious God has made this promise to you. According to the riches of your glory, Father, with all your heart and with all your soul, do not stop doing them good. I'm ashamed of my prayers. I have to repent of my very best prayers. Do you understand? For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's the first of these three requests. Remember they, those that begin with the word that, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's asking to be strengthened with power. We've talked a lot about the power of God Remember that first prayer, he was praying that we might know the immeasurable greatness of the power of the power of the power of God towards his children. Chapter 3, verse 7, he says that he has been made a minister according to God's grace by the working of his power. This is the power of God coming upon man. This isn't a man, a power that's natural to man. This isn't a power that springs up within us. We are wholly dependent upon God at all times for this power. That's why he prays that God might grant you. It's not innate and natural to us. It's a thing we must look to God and ask for. And it remains his power at work within us. Not our power, his power. That's why in verse 20 he talks about his power at work within us. So I want you to look here at what Paul's asking for. He's not just satisfied in knowing that this infinitely powerful God is holy for him. He's not satisfied in knowing that this infinitely powerful God is doing things on his behalf. He's asking for inner strengthening. Strengthen me by this power. Strengthen them by this power. Don't just be that great, big, transcendent God who can do all things. Be the imminent, loving Father who by that power strengthens me. How does he endure you to the end? He strengthens you. So I can be so confusing. Wait, this is a battle I'm in here. I'm running a race and I'm fighting a fight. I'm in a dog fight here and you're telling me God's the one that's enduring me to the end? Yes, by strengthening you, by his power strengthening you. That's what Paul's asking for here. Not outward physical strengthening. There's times when God comes and does this, like Samson, right? He comes and he gives them some type of physical strength for a, for a purpose. Or I grew up in the era of the power team and they would come and blow up a hot water bottle. And somehow that meant I was supposed to love Jesus. And I never really understood what that meant, but it was cool. And there's, there's plenty of damnable ministries out there that tell people this is what God promises for you. Not that you'll be a he-man, but that there's, there's outward healing that's going to come. If you'll just follow Jesus and have enough faith. And how many lives have been ruined by these kind of lies? Now there will come a day when we'll be raised in glory. We, we were singing about it earlier, that the foretaste that we have now of something to come. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Well, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. When Christ Jesus returns, this very body will be honorable and glorious and powerful. That's not here. What's he praying for? The strength in the inner person, the inner being. The the word is just man. Strength in the inner man. That which is unseen and frankly not thought about by most of the world world is consumed with the outward. And I don't just mean here beauty and strength. I mean just the physical, tangible, tasteable, touchable, hearable, showable things. Never thinking about the inner man, the mind, the will, the emotions, the soul of man. But that's what he's asking for here. Next week, God willing, we'll come to verse 17. He's talking about Christ dwelling in our hearts, the core, the the inner essence of who a man is. That's the strengthening that he wants. And you know this to be true, just at an earthly level, the strength you need is tied to what you want to happen. Athletes train for a purpose. A marathon runner doesn't train the same way as a power lifter. You, You train with the end in sight. You desire strength. For the end in sight. And so what does Paul want for these people? He wants mental strength that they can keep focused on Christ. He wants them to have emotional strength that they're not going to be rocked by everything that happens in this life. He wants them to have strength of will that they will endure and that they will press on. That's what Paul prays for. And i oh man, I hate that I'm so short on time. I'm just now getting to the main point of it all. These people needed other things. They had physical needs. They needed food and they needed clothing and they needed shelter. and They, they needed... Their, their, their apostle Paul is in jail. And so what does is, what is Paul pray for in this moment? You don't think anybody was sick in Ephesus? You don't think anybody was sad and depressed and anxious and fearful and... and Maybe even loathing their life because of the external circumstances in Ephesus. And what does Paul pray for? Inner strength. Because that's what they needed. That was the only thing that was going to help them. If not, you need to understand me, then Paul's the devil. You have access to to the infinite glory of the God of the universe. You've been set apart and commanded by God to pray for these saints. You know all the things that they're suffering for. You get an audience with God as your father. And you pray for inner strength. Either that's the very thing that they need or Paul's a devil. Beloved, we know the answer to this. Can we memorize? We just need to memorize it because every week I see, it seems like I turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Is Miss Heidi in here? Did she have to go attend to what, what the kiddos? What are the little kids memorizing right now? What is it? Isaiah 53. The whole thing, right? Surely we can memorize it. At very least from verse 7 to the end of the chapter of 2 Corinthians 4. Can we do that together? How would it transform your life to have these words hidden in your heart? just I, I don't have time for commentary here. Just listen and be encouraged. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I skip to verse 16. So, because of all that, so we do not lose heart. Why does Paul keep saying we don't lose heart? Because Christians are prone to lose heart. We're walking the hard path, we're seeking the narrow way, we're refusing to go after the band-aids and the cotton candy of this world. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self, our outer man, there's an inner man, there's an outer man. The outer man is wasting away. Do you feel it? Does your body groan waiting redemption? Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. You've got to come back day after day after day. He continues to drive him to himself in your weakness and in your suffering and in your struggles. He's doing good for you in that because it drives you to him. And you know his power and you know his life and you know his grace and you know his goodness and he gets the glory as day after day, he drives you to him, this ongoing work for what? That we can conquer our enemies, that we can be rich and healthy, That everybody will leave us alone and quit talking bad about us? No. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the strength that Paul is praying for them to have. That they would not lose hope, that they would believe God's word when He says, I'm doing you good in the suffering. So press on. Press on. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that as the infinitely glorious, all powerful God, the God in whom there is no lack, the God for whom nothing is too difficult. That you have pledged yourself to us in Christ Jesus. So we ask you, Father, to come now by your spirit and strengthen us in our inner man. Our outer man is wasting away and someday it will die. So, Father, help us. Help us to carry on in faith and in hope and in endurance for the sake of glory. It's in Jesus' name we ask it.